0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. That, of course, was a clip from one of my favorite movies, Amadeus. Would you raise your hand if you have seen that movie? Good. (laughs) If you haven't, that's your homework assignment for this week. Um, It will help you continue processing this very important topic of envy. You know, we're working our way through a series, a short one, on the seven deadly sins, and we're calling it virtue and vice. And what we've established is that these seven deadly sins are not the seven worst things a human being can do, but they represent the seven most fundamental distortions of the human heart, from which flow all the horrible things we do to ourselves and to each other and to God. The film Amadeus traces out in the most compelling way, the story of envy and the effect that envy has on a human being. Some of us have wrestled with envy most of our lives. Some of us have been deeply wounded by someone whose heart became gripped with envy and they did unspeakable things because their hearts could not be content with what they were given. Amadeus traces out the story of Antonio Salieri, who was, in fact, like he claims, one of the most famous composers in all of Europe at the time. And what he prayed for all his life was for musical greatness. And he said to God, if you will give me that greatness, I will give you the dedication of my whole life. And in fact, I will use that greatness to bring glory to your name. And for a good part of his life, that's what was happening. He was getting favor, position, status, fame. And then a young upstart named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart came on the scene. At a very young age, as an adolescent, he was composing symphonies and concertos. And um, he was clearly touched by God. Have you ever, I think in every field of endeavor, no matter what it is, There are people who are good at it, who work hard at it, and then there are people who just seem touched by God, right? Do you know what I'm saying? I've been around people like that in, in fields that I care about. There are people who don't even seem to try, and somehow as if from heaven itself, some divine enablement just touched them, and they're amazing, almost without effort. How do you feel about people like that? (laughs) If you just love people like that, you're probably one of them. And we all hate you, so. I think it's really hard to accept that when you really want to be great at something and you're kind of pretty good and then you see someone else who's just amazing at that thing which you always longed to have for yourself. And somewhere along the way, it becomes clear to you that this is not just an incremental thing, but a profound unfairness in the universe. Because they don't just have an advantage over you that you could close the gap by hard work. There is, It's as if God himself anointed that person to have a level of superiority above you and others so great in a hundred lifetimes, you couldn't touch it. And you only can appreciate this level of greatness and anointing when you are a fairly accomplished person yourself. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, if I was a tennis player um, when I was in high school, and I loved tennis. And we would hit the ball, and some of these freshmen would come when I was a varsity player, and they would look and go, man, you're all really good. You guys all seem the same to me. And we're like, <laughs> no, no, not Kenny. Kenny was the senior on our team when I was a sophomore. Kenny went on to play for a very good university team. He went on to become a professional. And Kenny was different than all of us. To this freshman, he looked like just the rest of us because we were slamming the ball. It was coming just an inch over the net. People were scrambling and falling. We all looked the same to this freshman. But to us who were on the varsity team, we could know right away Kenny's not like us. You have to get to a certain level to appreciate that level of specialness. Are you with me so far? And so you can especially appreciate this almost divine touch only when you get to a place of proficiency in something that you can spot the really good from the truly divine and great. And if you love something with all your heart, it can be really galling to see that the thing you want most was given to someone else. And that maybe, for the rest of your life, you will never really catch up and attain that level of greatness. What and who we envy reveals a lot about our hearts. If you study your own envy, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what it is that you most treasure and value And you also learn a lot about what image you long to project to the world. What does your envy reveal to you about your heart? I spent a week pondering that question. You know, the hardest part about preaching is not studying and writing. The hardest part about preaching is that before... See, you just have to listen to me for like 40 minutes. I have to listen to God for seven days, just pound away at my soul about this stuff. And it's not easy to have your heart exposed to God over and over and over. And my envy has taught me a lot this week. I wonder if you spent this week dwelling on your own envy, if you have it, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everyone wrestles with this, but if you have it, Study it. Try to understand it, because it will show you something about yourself that God really wants you to see. This morning, I want to just make a couple observations about envy through the lens of Titus 3, 3 to 7. It's probably a passage that um, most of us haven't spent a lot of time in, and we're not going to dwell very deeply in this text today, but I want to use it really as a lens through which we can understand the power of envy, and how to get out from under its weight. Here's what it says. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Sorry for that stray word there. I don't know how that ended up there. Collector. It's weird. I want to start by examining the root of envy, where it comes from. I mean, I think we all know what envy is, right? It's this feeling of dissatisfaction with what I have because I'm obsessed over what you have because it's what I want to have. It's not a hard concept to understand, but where does it come from? Last week when we talked about pride, we established that pride is really the trunk of the tree of sin. It's the root from which all other sin arises because pride is the fundamental primary distortion of the human heart. And pride shows its face in many forms, including insecurity, if you could believe that. The insecure are not people who are weak, they are people whose pride has taken a very weird turn. We established last week that the reason pride is so powerful is because we all long to have a sense of our own dignity, our worth, and our value. Because we're made in God's image, we're not content to say, I'm worthless and nothing. No one can say that about themselves and be okay with that because that is not what we were made for. We are bearers of the divine image. God shaped us lovingly to be more than that. So when we are less than that, our hearts are not content. They rail within us for yearning of dignity and value and worth. Everyone wants it, and the problem is not in the wanting. The problems come in how we try to get it. We all should have a sense of dignity and worth and value. We can't exist healthily without it. But who you turn to to give you those things makes all the difference in the world. C.S. Lewis, uh, in the book Mere Christianity, has an entire chapter devoted to pride. And in one section of that chapter, he describes the inherently competitive nature of pride. That pride is not just something we feel in isolation. In fact, he says, he says what he really argues is you can't really be prideful if you're marooned on an island all by yourself. Pride requires community for it to be at work. And here's what he says. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride is gone. I'm a car guy, so a lot of my um, illustrations are about cars. If you're not a car person, forgive me, Um, but I love cars. And I got to imagine that if I bought a brand new supercar. Fill in the blank. Whatever your favorite supercar is. 72 Plymouth Roadrunner. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am on Facebook, Heath. And let's just say you got this car and it's pristine. It's a collector's item. It, it, you, and you are so looking forward to driving up to the next church picnic to be like, vroom, vroom, and everyone's going to be like, what is that? Who is that? Who is that? And you pull into the parking lot and everyone there has a collector grade Barrett Jackson auction quality muscle car. How do you feel in that moment? Do you feel like, oh, I'm so happy that everyone in my church has an awesome car like I have? Maybe. But a side of you is stinging because you longed to show everyone this great thing you have but when everyone's special, no one's special. I think the competitive, comparative heart of pride is what we see when we're in the, what, would, what would you would call the aggressive or offensive layer of pride. But pride also has a distorted version. See, pride says, I feel great because I have more or I am more than someone else. But what envy is, is a weird distortion of pride that says, I feel terrible because I see that I am less or I have less than someone else. Whereas pride is trying to score as many goals as possible, envy is paralyzed by the fact that someone else is scoring more more goals than me. They're the two sides of the same coin, but it's a distortion of the human heart that creates so much damage. The envious person seeks to find their self-worth by comparing themselves with others. They only know how to feel about themselves if they have someone else to compare against. I mean, if you were the only human being born by yourself on an island and lived there all your life, would you know if you're tall? I think I am. I'm definitely taller than the lizards and the koala bears and everything else I'm on this island with, I think I'm very tall. You can't know things like I'm tall unless there's at least one other person. So if I'm standing next to Brett Driscoll or John Warden or Andy Chor, someone taller than me, I'm like, I'm not tall. I felt tall until they walked in the room, and now, darn it, I'm short. The envious person can only see life through this lens. I know what I am only when I stand next to others and compare. It's how I know where I stack up. It's the sanest way to live if no one else has given you an unshakable sense of worth and value. And dignity. If all your life you've had a scramble to earn it for yourself, if you grew up under a home where the only time you ever heard praise was when you did a good thing, the only time you were ever accepted and loved was when you did better than your siblings, when you did better than the kid down the street, if that's the only way you ever received praise, you are going to be a mess. You are going to become an envious person because you were never given any idea that you could find worth by anything other than comparing yourself to other people. And it is an exhausting and horrible way to live your life. The rise of social media has been hell on earth for envious people, hasn't it? How many times have you staged a photograph to look even better than it felt in the moment? Because you are aware of how many people would cast an idea about your life's quality Based on that snapshot. And how many times, having posted it, have you been defeated when you scroll down and go, dang it, their graduation party looked way more awesome than our graduation party? They had a DJ and a dunk tank, and what? We had some balloons, and we had some hamburgers, and we had my iPod on a Bluetooth speaker. See, I think the rise of social media has done so much damage to the human spirit because there are so many people who only know what they're worth when they compare themselves with others. They're momentarily inflated when they look better and horribly defeated the next moment when they look worse. Joseph Epstein, who is an essayist and a very witty person, wrote a very, very readable book on this topic of envy. He used to be the editor of the American Scholar magazine. And he said this. I think it's one of the greatest quotes about envy. Of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. (laughs) He's not a Christian, so uh, that adds a little flavor to what he's saying. But look at that list, and you see how how intelligent and witty it is. There's a lot of fun to be had with all the other ones. Right? Isn't that true? Except envy. There's no version of envy that feels awesome. Oh, I love feeling this kind of envy. They have so much better stuff than me. It's awesome. See, everything else has a pleasure side. But envy is only suffering. Envy promises nothing but misery. There's no pleasure in return. If you live this way, you are never going to be a joy-filled person until God takes from you that envy. And envy has a tremendous cost, a tremendous, terrible cost. Paul writes in his letter to Titus, do you remember before we were Christians that this was the normal way to live? Our, our relationships were marked by all kinds of malice and envy, and as a result, we hated each other. And it was because each of us were slaves to foolish things. We let these stupid, weak things absolutely control our hearts. We were incapable of being happy for ourselves or for anyone else because we were enslaved to passions that were deceiving We couldn't know how to be different. And as a result, the way that we lived with each other was we hated each other. We were filled with hatred because ultimately we're also filled with hatred for ourselves. Envy begins with the statement, I hate my life. Have you ever said those words? I heard those words this week. Spoken by someone I love very much. I've spoken those words many times. Have you ever just, when you cry, you're like... I hate my life, right? Remember, remember the, um, the apparently kid who had like 15 seconds of fame? And in another video, that's what he kept saying. I hate my life. I feel like that's the national anthem of our country today. I hate my life. And that's what envy does to you. You hate what you have because it compares so unfavorably to what they have. But it's not long before I hate my life becomes, I hate your life. And then soon that becomes, I hate everybody. I just hate everybody. I am so over all of it. See, the envious, because they try to gain self-worth through comparing, they see life as a zero-sum game. You know what that is, right? A zero-sum game in game theory is a game in which There is a limited number of points so that if someone else wins, you, by by definition, lose. Another person's gain is my loss. That's what musical chairs is all about, right? I mean, everyone else gets a chair, you don't get one. Their winning equals your losing, and then they take out another chair. It's a horrible, devious game. I don't know what we're trying to teach children with that game, except that life is cruel and you're going to lose. And because the the envious person seeks to gain worth by comparing, they think that everyone else's winning equals my losing. and They're tortured by that idea. Everyone else becomes a rival, a threat, a reminder not of what I have that I want more of, but that they have something and that means I don't have it. I think envy becomes even more of a problem when what we see is that the other people who have so much more of what we want seem to get it so effortlessly. In fact, they didn't even want it. I was just tiptoeing through the daisies and all of a sudden, bam, I'm a musical genius. I think that's what made Salary so mad about Mozart was this guy was so irreverent, so arrogant, so irreligious, God got zero glory from Mozart. Mozart got all the glory from Mozart. He was immature. He was a womanizer. He fathered like six children by six different women. He was a terrible person. Just the kind of person you don't want to see make music like this, and yet that's who got it. And it drove Salieri to madness because Mozart didn't even seem to practice or try. He would just sit down and in one try with a pen, just start writing scores. It's like that artist, there's a Korean artist on YouTube, who makes incredible art with an ink pen on the first go. There's no soft sketching followed by, he just goes, and I'm like, how is he doing that? It looks like some kind of camera trickery. There are people who just seem to be touched this way, and when they have it, they don't even seem all that grateful or humbled by this amazing gift. Doesn't that kind of person drive you crazy? Someone who, you sit there all morning, you're like, Straightened, and your hair is like maybe at the end of an hour, you're like, all right, I think I can go out now. Here's this person who just wakes up in the morning, and her hair looks like salon, right? And you're like, I hate you. And she's like, what? Does, everybody's just, I, I don't get it. And you're like, at least be thankful. At least show some humility, like, this is not me, it's just God, I'm sorry, everyone. But they don't even do that. And so the cost is, That when we are given over to envy and we don't check it in our spirit, we not only hate ourselves, we start to really hate everyone else for whom life looks so effortless and easy and abundant, and why not me? Why does this garbage always happen to me and never anyone else? It is obviously a distortion of the truth in most cases, And yet, that's what we choose to believe. And after a while, envy left unchecked starts to drive a wedge between us and just about everybody else. But here's the greater cost. After a while, envy doesn't just break human relationships. We start to turn our attention not to this envious person because at the end of the day, Salieri didn't really have a problem with Mozart. He had a problem with God. God, I don't get you. All my life, since I was a boy, I prayed for musical greatness, the kind I see in that donkey of a man, Mozart. I've always wanted that, not the the kind of composing that comes from deep study, a knowledge of music theory, hard work, burning the middle. I don't want that. I just want this kind of effortless divine anointing, and I never got it. I never felt that, and you gave it to him. And all I ever wanted was to glorify you. All this guy seems to want is to glorify himself. And so if that's how it works, then I don't just blame Mozart. I blame you because it's on your watch that this kind of injustice fills the earth. It's not long before envy left unchecked begins to drive a wedge between us And God, who's supposed to be in charge, the superintendent of this place, who's in charge around here anyway? Who's in charge of the distribution of blessings? Because obviously, he doesn't play fair. And after a while, you start to hate the God who stacked the deck so unfairly against you. Envy is sin in part because it lacks gratitude. Because envy obsesses over what it doesn't have that others have, it cannot see just how much it has already received. The envious person isn't living a life devoid of blessing, but their life is filled with blessings that don't count because the only blessing that matters right now is the one they have yet to receive. The truth is, Salieri, and this is a real story, okay, this is not, it's a little fictionalized in the film version, but it's based on real stuff. And Salieri, in fact, was one of the most influential and famous composers in Europe in his time, in the late 1700s to the early 1800s. He was one of the top guys making music in Europe. In fact, for 36 years, he served as the chief composer and music maker the Kapellmeister of the Austrian Empire. He counted among his students. Listen, he taught Liszt, Schubert, and Beethoven as among his students. I mean, that's not some guy who's like a hack, wishing he could be somebody. This was a man who had substantial musical chops and a reputation. If he really, really wanted to glorify God through his music, nothing was stopping him. He had all that he needed to do just that right where he was. And just like that, Salieri thought, so what? None of that counts now because Mozart. Because of Mozart's existence, every blessing Salieri had been given looked like garbage to him because he couldn't stand the fact that for one other person, he shone in ways that he longed to shine. I think that casts a little doubt on the sincerity of Salieri's claim, if you will give me this, I will bring glory to you. Why couldn't he do that with the abundance that he had already been given? Why did someone having more mean, I will not until you give me that as well? Do you know how many people have a happy family and are destroying it because someone else has a happier one? Rather than embracing the children we have, we obsess over the children they have. And go, oh, my kids. Mongrels compared to their kids. Do you see the way their kids were like, hello, father. And like, and the kids never... And you know, you got kids. They're healthy. Ten fingers, ten toes, whatever. The, everything's there. And you can't even appreciate it because you're obsessing over how they're not like somebody else's kids. As a result... You throw away what should be built in gratitude because someone else just happens to have a little more. That's the great cost of envy is it starts to break every relationship. You start to hate your own self and then you hate everyone else and then in the end you hate God who's left. You can't hate the whole universe and ever hope to feel okay, can you? The great cost of envy is that it breeds hate towards everything and everyone. What a depressing place to end. So let me give you one last thing. Now, when I say the remedy for envy, I don't mean some tidy little, oh, here's what you do, and it's just going to go away. I'm talking about where to look to begin finding hope and a way out. Envy leads to an inability to love ourselves, an inability to love other people, and ultimately an inability to love God who's in charge. But in his letter to Titus, Paul says, do you remember that that's how we thought about life? It's how we lived. Everyone else has a better life than me. Everyone else has more, gets more, are more, and why not me? Those are the three favorite words of the envious person. Why not me? Paul says, here's what changed everything. All that changed when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared. Until then, we didn't have any other way to measure our worth besides comparing ourselves to other people. And then one day, God sends his son, Jesus, who loves us and accepts us, not because of anything we'd done, but simply because he had compassion on us, because he wanted us, he cared for us. He loved us the way a mother or father loves their baby before the baby does a single thing to deserve it. Can we just admit, babies do jack squat to earn our love and care. They're useless. I don't mean to be cruel, I'm just saying, What? tell me what your baby does in the house that warrants all that attention and priority. They do nothing. They just sit there and make messes and steal your sleep. Why do you love them? It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with your heart. You love them because you made them. They're yours. And your heart just can't help it. Later on, all that becomes much more conditional. (laughs) But I'm talking about babies, not children, and certainly not teenagers. But I'm talking about babies. We love babies the way God loves us. And here's the crazy thing. When we start acting like teenagers, God still loves us like his babies. I don't understand that. That, more than any other thought that I've ever come across in my human life, makes my head want to explode and my heart want to burst. I cannot understand a being like that. I want to. I've dwelt on it a lot. I yearn to be a, for a person like that as a father and as a husband. I'm trying, but that blows my mind. And what Paul says is if you really think about what Jesus is and does for us, who he, he is, what he represents, it will blow your mind. It will show you that that more than any other thing, changes everything. It changes everything. You can't live the way you used to if you truly understand that. And you, you can't claim you truly understand that if you keep living the way you always used to. The kindness of our God and Savior, that changes everything. The first remedy to envy is to accept and receive the fact that God loves you the way a father or mother loves their baby before you do a single thing to get on his good side. He loves you because he made you. He loves you because his heart is filled to overflowing with love. Apostle John said it so simply, you can't do better than this. We love because he first loved us. If we love anyone or anything truly in this life, it's only because we first acknowledged and accepted his love for us. The cure for envy is not simply contentment, lying to yourself that you are very happy with your 2016 Civic when you're standing next to a Tesla at the stoplight. That kind of lying to yourself that I'm okay with this, I'm okay with this. I'm not okay with it, but I am. See, the the cure for envy is not to act like you like what you have, but to recognize that even what you have points to someone who loves you with a love you will never fully understand over the course of your whole life. So, what I'm trying to say is, God loves me is not a question. It's a statement of faith. When it becomes a question, everything is undone. I'm not saying you shouldn't ask, but if you ask, don't look at your life to find the answers. That's stupid. You cannot look at the frailty of your life through your skewed lens and think you're going to find evidence of God's great love for you. The place to begin looking for the answer to the question, does God love me, is not whether I have a good day or a bad day. It is at the cross of Jesus that that answer begins to show itself. Before he can show his love to us in any other way that means anything to us, we have to be able to see it in the cross of Jesus. And if you can't see it there, you won't see it if everything goes your way for the next six years. As I promise you, after that string of good luck, the next downturn will tick you off even more. It'll discourage you even more because you've gained so much more to lose in those years of plenty. God loves you is an unshakable law of the universe. And if you must ask it as a question, look in the right place for the answer. I'm not saying that you're not tempted to look at your life. I'm tempted to look at my life. But that's never the place where we're going to find the answer that satisfies. It's the cross and the scripture that tell us the truth about God's great love for us. Every life, every life has huge peaks and huge valleys. Every life. The story of God's love is not told there. It's told in scripture, and it's told on a wooden cross. That's how God proved beyond any doubt that he loves you and he loves me. It's the journey of our lifetimes to seek the answer there. And when we find it, we can return to our lives that feel often like a roller coaster and begin to see that love woven even through the bad times. I'd like to offer you some practical ways you can start working through this in your life this week. Is that fair? Do you guys want something practical? It's not my forte at the end of sermons to do this, I'm realizing. But I think it's important. And I want to give you one just to start here. That is to practice Gratitude. I preached on this topic before, but envy and bitterness flourish in the absence of gratitude. Just like mushrooms grow better in the dark, envy and bitterness grow best when there's nothing to be thankful about. When everything around you sucks and you're like, ugh, 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 then envy and bitterness will grow like mushrooms in your attic. Gratitude forces us to look not at what we don't have, but at what we do have. It forces us to look there. It forces us to say, and I don't know if you've ever practiced this, a gratitude journal where every night as you're going to bed, you're forced to write down five things you're thankful for. I've heard all kinds of variations, some as high as 10. I think that's a little ridiculous. Who's got that kind of time? But three even, for some people, seems like a stretch. Really? Three things I'm genuinely thankful for today? But when you start to do it, you realize 10 isn't actually that hard. Even on a bad day, if you direct your eyes, because here's a truth you need to remember, is you see what you look at. If there was a killer approaching me with a knife behind my back, guess who's the only guy in the room who won't know? All of you are like, oh. And I'll be like, what? Because you can't see what you never look at. If I want to see what's behind me, what do I have to do? I have to look behind me. It's that simple. It's not that there's nothing to be thankful for, but if you don't practice gratitude, you're going to assume that your sour attitude tells the truth about your life, that there really is nothing in this life to be thankful for. So practice gratitude because that begins to erode away at envy. Practice humility. Here's the bias of envy, is that everyone else seems to have it so easy, and I always have to have it so hard. I have to study. Everyone else is just like, I just got an A because, just because. It's really tempting to believe that, isn't it? Oh, you make it look, and you know, we try to promote that legend about ourselves. Oh, these muscles right here, I don't even work out. I just, I don't know, I wake up and I, This hair, I didn't even work at it. Oh, my house, it's always like that. (laughs) I didn't just make my family miserable for two days cleaning up the house before you came. So we love to project this idea that our greatness is effortless, and we believe it in others, don't we? But what if it's not as true as it seems? What if behind that greatness is actually more hard work and faithfulness and obedience than we want to acknowledge? Yesterday morning, or yesterday afternoon, we had a uh, retirement party for my dad. He celebrated the end of a 55-year career in medicine. And in the room were people who I've seen since I was an infant, friends of his he's walked with for over 50 years. One guy in the room who is as much a fixture in my life as my own parents has been my dad's closest friend since they were 12 years old. A 66-year friendship, and they're still together in the same small group Bible study, still seeing each other all the time. And here's what he shared when he got up to speak. He said, all my life, I've lived in your dad's shadow academically. Every time, and this is the cruelty of the Korean educational systems, after the tests are graded, they post the results in order. What is that? Only in Asia would you get that kind of nonsense. And so everyone would take the test, and they would rush and go, who's the top name? And every single time, it was my dad. Every time. That happened all the way through medical school. And then my dad did something crazy. He moved to the United States, and he began studying medicine again, all over, in a foreign language. And he still was crushing the board exams. He got the highest score in the country in another language. And this guy's like, what do I got to do? Catch up with this guy. Now, the funny part of that story is the subtext was, I don't get it. Like, he, how does he do it so consistently, so naturally? Here's what everyone didn't see that my family got to see is my dad hunched over in our closet. We lived in a two bedroom apartment for years. And because he had no study and we were noisy children, he went into the closet of his bedroom turned on the single bare light bulb, hunched on the ground over his books and studied sometimes six to seven hours a night after coming home from work. That's what we watched. We didn't watch it. We just noticed, where's dad? Oh yeah, shh, he's in the closet. When my dad finally came out of the closet, he was a genius. <laughs> yeah. See, everybody else's greatness appears effortless but what if we humbled ourselves and thought, what if it's not such magic and voodoo? What if what God is showing me in this person's greatness is something I could emulate? What if, in fact, I humble myself and said to this person I envy, what is it that you do? Is it something I could learn? Can you mentor me? Can you teach me? Can you show me what I'm not doing right? Can you imagine the opportunity for growth, that the person you resented and envied could become someone who helps unlock the greatness that God wants to put in you. I better finish quickly here. So let me give you another. Practice love. Here's a reliable saying. It's almost impossible to hate someone you're loving. I know that's a stupid-sounding sentence, but... When you make a choice to actively love and serve another person, it's really, really hard to keep the fires of resentment and hatred alive. That person who's succeeding where you're failing, you write them a card saying, you know, can I just say to you, you're an inspiration to a lot of us. We set you as a benchmark to which we aspire and I just want to encourage you, because maybe everyone resents you. No one ever told you, you're awesome, man. Just want to let you know I see you. And what if we did that, and that person, for the first time in their lives, stopped feeling like the champion who has to protect his back and starts to feel like part of a community? Not the most hated person in the room, but someone who everyone else sees. In 1 Peter 4.8, he writes, Above all, love each other deeply. This is so profound because love covers over a multitude of sins. You could argue that every one of the seven deadly sins finds its antidote in love. In fact, every one of the seven deadly sins points to the death of love in us. When we decide to practice love, towards others, it becomes harder to keep envying them. We begin to appreciate and admire them. And finally, practice patience. It's a little related to humility. Can I just, let's all warm each other's hearts by acknowledging this together. There are a hundred things that are never going to happen for you in this life that you wish would. Same for me. I'm never going to have great skin. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal at age 50, but at age 15, it was hell on earth. I look like something that exploded everywhere I went. I think if I lived 2,000 years ago, I'd have to walk around with a bell on my neck shouting unclean everywhere I went because people would assume I had leprosy. That's how bad it was. And it's left its mark on me. I look at people who would just have almost like robot skin. I'm like, what is that? In this life, I'll never have that. I've always wanted to be a little taller. Everything I love doing would be better if I were taller. But alas, I'm shrinking. In high school, I was five, six, and three quarters. In some doctor's office, I was five, seven. That quarter inch matters a lot to guys like me. Today, I'm five, five and a half. So if you don't count the halves and three quarters, I went from 5'7 to 5'5 over the last 40 years. I'm never going to dunk a basketball. I'm never going to run a marathon. And that's just the shallow stuff. There are a lot of things I wish would be true of my life before it's over. And I just have to accept that they're not going to be. That doesn't mean I don't want. It just means I have to look forward to a time when the imperfections and the limitations of this life are done. He melts it all down and rebuilds it. And finally in that day, everything that was not will be. All that was missing will be present. One day there will be a death of tears and sadness, sorrow and hatred emptiness, and longing, one day. And if I have to have it all now, why would I ever look ahead to that day? We have to practice the patience that so much of what we long for is God's way of depositing eternity in our, into our hearts, to say, yearn for a day when all this goes away and all that you yearn for will be yours. Can we come to peace with the fact that some of the things we long for the most are not going to be given in this life? That's hard. That's very, very hard. But it's necessary to face. And God has not left us hopeless. He's promised us that one day that emptiness and sadness will end. i want to invite you to bow with me. We've got a few minutes today, and in that few minutes, I want to invite you to just interact with the Lord about this topic a little. Maybe the place to start is not by looking for envy, because sometimes just by admitting envy It wounds our pride. It makes us say someone else is better than me. Maybe the place to locate envy in our life is by first looking for the bitterness, the resentment, the conflict. What is envy costing you? What is the dissatisfaction with your life obsession with what you don't have yet, costing you and costing other people that you love very much. Could you be missing out on this great news, that God has something really great for you? He wants to bless you and fill your life. You gotta be willing to accept the life that He gives you. So can I invite you now in the, the quiet of the next two or three minutes, just listen for God's voice and respond from yours. Let's pray together.